Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. December 10th, 2023, episode 231, zone 7. Hello everyone, welcome into the corner, the Beekeeper's Corner. I'm Kevin England and it is episode 231 as we get close to rolling out of 2023. The holiday season is right smack dab in the middle, just past through Thanksgiving and the Christmas break for us, the holiday break, is right around the corner and I haven't done a lick of Christmas shopping yet. Yeah, I think it's time I better get on the stick, but you know what? We're going to do a podcast first, and let me tell you what I have on tap. Roundtable number one, wouldn't you love you some purple honey? I'll tell you a possible way you might be able to find some. Roundtable number two, the U.S. has been rezoned. Seems things are just a touch warmer for most of us these days. Roundtable number three, we lost a good soul. In our beekeeping community, a short reflection on the news that Kim Flottam has passed away. It breaks my heart. Roundtable number four, mites fleeing the scene. I'll share a conversation I had with New Jersey beekeeper James Zadepsky on a phenomenon that he recorded on his cell phone. It's an interesting find related to varroa mites and oxalic acid vaporizations. Roundtable number five, it's time to make mead. I have my eye on making some cherry mead and I have a few short reflections to share about the upcoming plan that I'm going to put in place. And then two topics for this episode. The first one, I was able to reconstitute somewhat the recordings that we made coming home from EAS in the car where Bob Kloss and I reflected on what we learned for the week. Not the greatest sound quality, but decent enough that you can get the takeaways. And I was able to plug one in here for a discussion that Bob and I had about what Cameron Jack had to say about oxalic acid vaporizations and an aha moment for Vitella Genin to close that topic out. Then for topic two, it's a one-on-one with Missouri beekeeper Kathy Misko, also recorded at EAS, and I'm happy to say the sound... Quality on that one is lickety-split. No problem there. A few short closing comments that will get you out of here in about 90 minutes, give or take. Before we head into roundtable number one, just a couple housekeeping notes. www.bkcorner.org is the website. If you want to look there, you'll find the show notes for this show and all the shows. And there's timetables for all the topics. You can do a search on what was presented for any of the shows in the back catalog. Uh, There's a donate button there. I don't say this very often. I'm not really big about plugging it, but on the right side, you can go down and find a PayPal link. If you care to support the program, everything that gets donated goes back into not digging so deep into my pocket to produce everything that goes on around here. And the last thing I'll say is give us a like, give us a thank you, leave a comment. If you're in your podcast player it really does go a long way at helping us get up in the rankings and you know people can find the show when it gets promoted a little more as one of the more popular beekeeping shows and heck we've been around since 2010 so hopefully you appreciate it and you can give a thanks by just saying thank you 
Uh, it goes a long way, and I do appreciate that. You know what? Enough schlepping. Let's go ahead and head into roundtable number one and get this thing started. Roundtable number one, Katsu. To me, the name evokes the sentiment of a sneeze, but to those who are local in the southern United States, Kudzu is likely well-known and more of a secret to quite a few of us on the mainland. We have not seen it here in any abundance in our state of New Jersey, but apparently it is possible for this plant to persist here. Why the interest in Kudzu? Well, there's a little something unique about it when it comes to beekeeping. But before I talk about that, let me spend a minute painting a picture of what kudzu is. Scientifically, it's known by its species name, Parara montana. And it's a fast-growing vine native to Japan and China, southern China. It was introduced here in the States in the late 1800s and was planted because, well, one thing, the ability to prevent soil erosion. To be clear, it's not to be confused with a supplement that some know, which is called Pereira Merific, which is another plant from Thailand and Southeast Asia that's used to provide a hormone-like estrogen for the body. Now back to Pereira Montana, which we said is more commonly known as kudzu. If you spend any time driving around the southern United States, specifically for me, I would say it was North and South Carolina, you would see vestiges of the invasiveness of this plant. When you come across it, you could tell that it is absolutely horrific. You'll be driving along this stretch of highway and look over to the side, only to see an entire swath of the side of the road, encompassed in a vine structure. When I say encompassed, I mean Every inch is covered in a blanket of vines. The ground, the shrubs, the trees, any structures that can be climbed, they're completely and utterly encompassed in a blanket of thick, lush, green vines. You know, you only have to notice it once, and when you start to see it all over the place as you ride around, you'll come upon a spot along the road and you'll see a vast swath that might run a tenth of a mile absolutely, utterly ensconced with these vines. You know, the only other invasive plant that I could imagine growing in this form, when you mistakenly plant it, is bamboo. Don't ever plant bamboo because of how pretty it looks. It will take over your yard before you know it. Always put it in a pot. It seems that this plant would grow in New Jersey, kudzu, but factually, it prefers mild winters and hot summers, which are more prevalent, obviously, in the United States, hence the proliferation. The vines themselves can reach 100 feet, and its adaptability and aggressive growth make it a challenging invasive to constrain, which is likely why you encounter it so many times when you're riding around on the roads down south. Apparently, the leaves, the flowers, and the roots are edible. But for beekeepers, there's an interesting aside in that the honey produced from the plant shows up, some say, as a shade of purple. Not only 
Is the honey a plum color appearance? Apparently, some say it even has a touch of a grape flavor to it. Now, kudzu is not an unknown thing in the southern United States. It's been there some time, and well, the southerners, they're sometimes not buying that if they come across purplish-hued honey, that it's coming from that particular invasive plant. If you ask the locals down there, they have some other beliefs. In the southern region, there are a number of berries that are produced during the summer months, and, well, if a bee gets into fruit with dark hues, the sugary substance they might be bringing back have an influence on the color of the honey. You know, as to me, I'm kind of hoping that kudzu is the reason the honey is purpley blue, because, well, if you have to put up with all the crazy infestations that you see there, then perhaps there's some solace to think that the desecration of the landscape from the blight of it is at least helping the bees. If you want to see what I, what I mean about how crazy this stuff is when it takes root, simply open a browser on your phone or your computer and type kudzu, K-U-D-Z-U, and Paired with the word North Carolina, peek at some of the images that come up. It's amazing how alien the landscape looks. It's kind of like a War of the Worlds description when you spot it as you're driving along the road. Methinks that next time I am down that way, I am going to have to see if we can rustle up one of those purple hued darlings. Maybe on a roadside stand, I'll find a jar of honey. How cool would it be to have some purple honey on the shelf? If you're a listener and you know anything about this, you have purple honey, I want to hear from you. Kevin at bkcorner.org is my email address. Roundtable number two, zone seven. A change that doesn't come along very often just came about in the past week or so, and I wonder if it signals something important for beekeepers. Just recently, the U.S. Department of Agriculture released a refreshed USDA plant hardiness map. And the changes reflected are somewhere in the middle of, okay, new tweak to, wow, the zone shifts are pretty monumental depending on where you live and how you stand. If you're not familiar with this map, let me take a moment to state what it is and how we beekeepers could relate to what it tells us about the climate where we live. Directly from the USDA website, it says, quote, The plant hardiness zone map is based on the average annual extreme minimum winter temperature displayed as a 10 degree Fahrenheit zone ranging from zone 1, coldest, to zone 13, warmest. Each zone is divided into half zones designated as A and B. For example, 7A and 7B are 5 degree Fahrenheit increments representing the colder and warmer halves of zone 7, respectively. These designations serve as convenient labels and shorthand for communicating and comparing the extreme winter temperatures within the United States and Puerto Rico, end quote. 
If you happen to peek in on the new map, it should be evident that things have changed. Upon closer inspection, you could see that things have transformed, it appears, to a warmer outlook for much of the nation. Somewhere along the line of life, you probably have been tuned into your zone. If you've ever experienced buying some plants, for your property for example, you've likely seen the zone indication on the packaging or advertising. I don't live in that world much, but even I know that our area of zone in New Jersey is zone 6. That is, until last Tuesday. Now we are 7A, and the translation for us is, we are no longer in a zone that is considered for temperatures dipping below 0 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 15 degrees Celsius. When I peek at the previous map, alongside the new one, I could see that the temperature bands seem to have shifted north by about 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit on average as you watch the bands striate across the United States. The one quick question is, how did this happen? Is this global warming or maybe something else? What explains the shift? If you peek at the news, you will find an abundance of weather data and monitoring from the time they did the last one to the current time, has had some impact. Case in point, it was cited that weather records from Alaska have changed due to more sensors available, especially in the mountainous areas, and as such, some of the mapping reflections are there to show temperature changes because they were able to get more factual temperatures in those areas. I guess one thing to consider is that the last time the map was updated was 2012. And from a sensor standpoint, it's really like an ice age when it comes to technology advancements, if you think about what's happened in the last 13 years. 11 years. Do the math, Kevin. To make that point, the version of the iPhone... <laughs> That was on sale the last time the map was updated was the iPhone 5. So really, this is a tool for gardeners, but what does it mean to beekeepers? In a these things are connected kind of way, it has much to do about our bees when we see them leave the entrances of the hive in search of food. An underlying purpose of the zone map is to give one a sense of which plants, what plants, are viable to plant in your area based on whether they'll survive the extreme temperatures of winter. We personally have a really big southern magnolia tree in our backyard. Technically, it should not be there because Prior to last Tuesday, our New Jersey home was Zone 6, and magnolia trees are acceptable in Zone 7 and warmer. It just so happens that the place it was planted on our property has some unique features that protects it, and it has actually thrived there. And as beekeepers, we, 
Love it. That tree goes into full bloom and feeds our bees during the dearth. It's a joy and a wonder. Now, given the updated map from last Tuesday, our area has been reclassified as a Zone 7 area, and Southern Magnolias may be a viable addition to plant on your property if you're in New Jersey. They're an amazing draw to hungry bees, and if you want to feed bees, no matter where you are, plants are nice, but trees are better. So the zone map has changed, and it so happens that Zone 7 for us in New Jersey means that, on the whole, our winters are not likely to go under zero degree Fahrenheit anymore. I'm not sure what to make of that as a human being, but it is interesting to learn that our climate is on average 5% warmer in the winter in my lifetime. If you want to see the new map and learn about the programs, search for 2023 USDA Plant Hardiness Zone Map, or you can head to our website, www.bkcorner.org, for some links to the announcement and zone map and the zone map webpage. Before we move along, I have to give a thank to Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association, beekeeper Laura Joyner, for sharing the news we were chatting about this the other day when we were at our annual December party. Roundtable number three, I call this one one of the good guys. I have the sad task to pass along the news that's been spreading around quite rapidly that Kim Flottam has passed away, apparently after succumbing to lung cancer. Kim was one of the good guys, and I mean this in this manner. You know, sometimes you interact with people you don't know, but yet you know them because you act, interact with them in other meaningful ways, but not directly. In the case of Kim, for example, he was the longtime editor of the Bee Culture magazine. He did an amazing job when he was at the helm, and it wasn't unusual for him to write editorials, provide features, and he always seemed to have a passion for reporting all things in the honey industry. But he was more than that. He was a local, regional, and, dare I say, international trainer and the author of several well-respected beekeeping books. And while you may have never met him in person, you probably have listened to him on his podcast. In the general outward impression of him, at least my take on it, is that he was a likable guy, an everyday guy. And if you ever met him somewhere, you would hope that when you met him in person, he was as genuine as he seemed. I actually had the fortune of meeting him when the two of us presented at a Maryland Beekeepers Association meeting back in February of 2020. Sharon and I attended that meeting, and we went in a day early, and we tagged along with the Maryland folks to see Kim give a talk at another Maryland beekeeping club the night before our session. It was the first time I got a true sense of him, and I really only had known him from the interactions of seeing his work in bee culture and a couple other things. It became evident that his background and contributions were far richer to the beekeeping community than I had even known. 
You know, I met him once before when a friend introduced us at the ABF conference in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I knew him enough to say hello to him and chit-chat with him whenever I encountered him at a beekeeping meeting, but never really had the opportunity to sit down and have a discussion with him. I have to say thank you to the Maryland team who set up breakfast that following morning, and Sharon and I enjoyed the company of Kim and his wife before heading off to the show. I'm happy to tell you that Kim was as nice a person as you would ever imagine, and that makes his loss even more touching for me personally. The parallels to what Kim did and what I do overlap so much, as he was just a regular beekeeper dedicated to And, you know, he contributed a significant chunk of his life to his passion in beekeeping. And I can only imagine the hours he spent grinding it out for the things he produced that we all benefit from. So tell it to the bees, Kim has come home and he will be greatly missed. Condolences to his family and friends. And... If it just so happens that you're new to beekeeping and you did not have the chance to learn from Kim and who he was, then I suggest you would benefit from going back, looking at bee culture, and looking at the books that he wrote, and going to YouTube and finding some of the talks that he gave. He truly was a giver of information and friendship to beekeepers and left us a long legacy of work that we can appreciate. I might be overstating this as to the availability, but I am pretty sure that I recorded at least one of those talks that I sat in on, if not both of them. And perhaps in memory of Kim, I can go back and produce those and release them as a bonus show in memory of the expertise of his teaching the craft. Godspeed, Kim. You will be missed from those of us who appreciated what you did. Roundtable number four, I call this one the Great Might Escape. Fellow Northwest New Jersey beekeeper James Zepsky does a bit of a feature that he calls Days of Our Hives. The other day he was showing me some photos of an interesting occurrence he encountered after doing some oxalic acid vapor treatments. He had some blocks of wood scraps set along his bottom boards to close off the hive entrances during a session where he was performing oxalic acid vaporizations. The puzzling thing is when he picked the blocks of wood off of the bottom board entrances, he discovered dead varroa mites that were stuck to the wood. To describe this thing a little bit better, he has some Instagram videos showing where he picks the wood off And you can tell that the wood's been there a while. It comes off with a snap after being propolized. And as he turns them over, you can see dead mites clinging to the board. So to say this with a little more specificity, he performs an oxalic acid vaporization. The mites come down to the bottom board, speculation, and try to crawl out. And they got stuck underneath these pieces of wood and ended up meeting their fate there. He goes from colony to colony to colony, and each of the ones that he checks has the same dynamic. And after showing this, we discuss his hypothesis that, yeah, maybe the mites are trying to escape the treatment, 
and they were stuck against the boards after trying to flee. If you click on the link that I'll provide in the show notes, you can see him going from hive to hive showing the inspections of his bottom boards and some photos of the mite drops. Kevin Moment, if you click into the Instagram video, be sure to note that there's a series of small videos and some photos. Either swipe or tap through them in order to see them all. They're only a couple seconds. They're not long. Don't take a long time to watch. Uh, but you'll be able to see exactly what he d- described to me. End of Kevin moment. So, you know, it's an interesting behavior to witness, and I have to agree with him that on the surface, it sure looks like the varroa mites were trying to crawl out of the hive to escape the treatment, and they ended up stuck there underneath the wood blocks and met their fate. You could think, if you didn't know any better, that they did an oxalic acid treatment and all the dead varroa mites were there, and you put the blocks in on top of them and You know, over time, they've kind of become adhered to the blocks, but that's not what he described. If you look at the photos and videos, you can see just how many Varroa mites were in those hives. On the drop on the bottom board, it seemed to be really extensive. And it just goes to demonstrate and show how many Varroa mites can breed in a strong colony across the season pretty interesting stuff and if you have different ideas about what's possibly going on there after you take a peek send me a note and i'll pass it along to james kevin at bkcorner.org is the email address check the show notes for a link to the video and of course i'm under the uh impression that you'll need to have an instagram account And sign up if you want to look at the videos. So just know that going in. I also wanted to share that he has a number of beekeeping videos there. You can browse through the channel. If you have Instagram right now, you can go to at sign bman underscore z to find his Instagram posts about beekeeping and woodworking and a bunch of other things that he has going on. Pretty eclectic mix in the channel and some neat videos there for beekeeping if you wanted to peek around. Roundtable number five, I call this when New Jersey man makes mead. It's that time. I don't have enough time in my life to put together the block of minutes to take the time to get everything organized to make a mead. But as the holidays approach and I have the week off because our company is closed for the last week of the year, I always plan to do my mead making then. And there's another side effect of this is I always make my mead in the winter because when I put it down to ferment in the basement, the basement is the right temperature. It's a cool 50, 60 degrees, which to my understanding takes forever for the mead to do its thing, but In the end, it makes a better mead. So it's a cherry mead this year. And one of the things that I was doing is just going through the list. Honey, water, yeast, go firm, fermato, frozen cherries. And this time I ordered some oak cubes to go in it by recommendation. Never done that before. I was thinking about buying an oak barrel to do this. 
I think the oak cubes are good enough. And one of the things I want to be able to do is we have a lot of oak trees on our property and some of them are down from, you know, storms and so on. Somewhere I need to identify the proper oak because that's the way it works to toast and make your own oak cubes. Because if you go on Amazon, one of my favorite places, and you look up what it costs to buy toasted oak cubes, they're super expensive for a minuscule amount. When I have trees that are 30 inches in diameter out back that I can make dozens and dozens of bars of oak cubes, toast them, I don't know why I want to pay as much money for a stupid little packet of them. That being said, coming back to center, I've had uh, frozen cherries in the freezer in preparation for this day, and it'll be a happy day to get them out. They're double bags, so they don't deal with freezer burn, and you're supposed to freeze your cherries before you add them to the mead, so that when they thaw out, the freezing breaks down the cells and lets you extrapolate more of the cherry flavor out of whatever it is you're adding to your mead. I was looking at the yeast that was recommended from a recipe that I found online. It is um, D80, Lalamond Lalavin D80 yeast. And I started to think, well, in preparation for doing this recipe, I should go order my yeast, only to find out that if you want to buy this particular yeast, you have to buy gobs of it. And so that got me down the rabbit hole of how long does yeast last? And when you look, one of the recommendations that I saw is if you open a yeast and you don't use it all, you should seal it in a vacuum pack seal and keep it in a specific temperature and it will last about two years. There is no way if I spent $55 on a D80 yeast that I would use even a skosh of it and be able to want to come back to it later. So that set me on a path of trying to find a different yeast. One that I can buy in a more reasonable seven or eight grams, something like that, that I need for the recipe. And I settled on, this probably means nothing to you, 1116. And the reason I did that is I went through and looked at the characteristics of yeast for what they're used for. And this one is known to be a good yeast for fruit wine. And you typically use wine yeasts if you are inoculating your mead with something parallel. And in the case of this, it's supposed to be good for uh, fruity wines in the flavor that ends up afterwards. It's all one great big experiment, folks. And, you know, if you look at the different mead making sites and the recommendations, there's a bunch of different workhorses. D47 is another yeast. And these are just product numbers for strains that were identified as yeasts that are great for making mead. 1116 is one of the majors, as I can tell, that you use. And so hopefully that will work correctly. One of the things that I don't know is go firm, formado, or whatever you buy as nutrient add-ins to keep the yeast happy through its fermentation cycle. How long do they last? I'll have to do a little research and determine whether the ones that I have, which are a year and something old, 
are still good. I'm assuming they are. But, you know, it's kind of like when you're making bread and or baking things. You should always, given the holidays are here, little Kevin moment, check your baking powder and your baking soda. Make sure that they're fresh so that if you're going to bake a cake, it actually is going to rise from the action most times when you make cookies or cakes or whatever that don't turn out properly, it's likely because whatever you're contributing is not doing what it's supposed to do because it's too old. And the same goes for the nutrients and yeasts that you add to mead. End of Kevin moment. So I think somewhere in the next week or so, I will muster to get all the equipment staged to do this. I put all my bottles in, yeah, you know, there's 85 things you use sometimes when you make meat, depending on how you do it. Everything I put away clean, but I will clean and sanitize it one more time. And it is a mead making we will go. If you're interested, go to bkcorner.org and just search for mead. There's a presentation there that explains the basics of it. Maybe that's one of those things as a beekeeper you've never considered, but somewhere in your future, if you like to consume wine and or want to try another product of the hive, get the curiosity and go check out how to make mead. It is a fun product to make and a nice product to serve when friends and family come over, you pull out a bottle of mead and it's quite enjoyable. So cherry mead on the horizon. Let's see how that goes for 2023 end. I feel like this is a good time to turn to the back of the book and talk about the two topics that I want to bring in this episode. The first one is going to be a hybrid. I'm going to play you a bit of a recording of Bob Kloss and I talking about a presentation that Cameron Jack did at EIS 2023. And then we're going to reflect a little bit on a couple things that were said at other times in the conference and talk about our dear friend, Charlie Ilsley. And then I'm going to come back at the end of this and give a little uh, summation of what we talked about. And, And I want to talk about the takeaway of this and the really important point that I want everybody to get. So I won't do any further introduction other than apologize. It's a car recording. We're driving back and the microphones, the sound, the noise, not very good, but good enough that you'll get the gist of what we were talking about. And the breadth of the topic, which I've edited just a bit, was about what Cameron Jack is saying related to oxalic acid vaporizations and the latest round of work that he reported on at the Eastern Apiculture Society Conference. Cameron Jack. Cameron Jack. Good old Cameron. He was talking about, uh, was this a session with uh, Cameron Jack where he was talking about uh, oxalic acid, or was that a separate It was a separate session. Did you want to talk about that now, or do you want to go on to the next one? Uh, We could paraphrase what what Cameron had to say, and this is an update to his... Talk from last year. Yeah, last year he, or, or I think it was Kentucky... In Kentucky time frame, he had broken the news that one gram is not sufficient. 
more vaporization. Let's and the bad news is that there's still no change in the label. The label a responsible beekeeper says the label is the law. And when you treat with oxalic acid, it's one gram. If you're doing more than that, you're not following the law. Now, putting that aside, what he came back with is they've done a series of studies, progressions, that said, what's the, the amount? And it's somewhere between two to four grams. That's the amount you need to have an effective kill. And, more importantly, that amount does not do harm to the bees in their studies. The other thing that he was challenged, because he said, rightfully so, and he didn't want to wear this moniker, but he begrudgingly laughed at it, is he's become Oxolic Man. <laughs> <laughs> the superhero Oxolic Man, yeah. right? Because everybody constantly is, wants to hear what he has to say. And so he's pursued this even further. And He said, someday I'll put Oxolic Man cape away kind of thing, but for now I'll wear it. They tested... Various methods. They tested vaporization. They tested dribble. They tested... Shop towel. Shop towel. But not the Swedish sponge, because at the time they were doing it, that whole Swedish sponge versus shop towel versus yeah, whatever was still progressing, yeah. right? Yep. And they have to come back to Swedish sponge, which, by the way, got nuked. Everybody that was experimenting with the exceptions that they had for a couple different states, the EPA, was the EPA, right, came in and said, no more. We, we can't be having this. There's, we want better science on this. And I think ideally what they're trying to do is go back to South America, who has a commercialized product solution, and they'll take all the paperwork that's submitted to the government and bring it to the United States and use that as the starter kit to say, this is the way you should do it, and we already had yeah. years of proof of operation down there, versus everybody in their <laughs> garage or kitchen making up oxalic acid in their sink, right? They want to, <laughs> please stop, don't don't be doing that. Yeah. We love Randy Oliver too, but, you know. Well, it's funny because he actually asked them, in Australia, I guess, it's acceptable for you to be mixing up potions in your, uh, yeah. your house. And so Randy petitioned for it, and they said, no way. No. <laughs> Sorry, no way. I, I left out the middle word there, no effing way. And so there was a fourth method, which is the fogging. Yes. Which somebody in our club had talked about fogging, and I'm like, why would you ever, that's like the, I, I wasn't mean about it, I just said everything I know about that is like, put a big red X and a stamp, no, do not touch, right? So the results were, cutting to the chase, shop tails, mm, oxalic dribble, yes, oxalic vaporization, mega thumbs up, and uh, this this got a, a huge laugh out of everybody. The fogging, the mites actually increased. <laughs> Their mite counts actually went up with the fogging. So, again, no, no. 
So they've learned to snack on oxalic acid, huh? Apparently. <laughs> and so now there's more work going on. And one of the things he said, which I thought was funny, is he's not encouraging anybody to go beyond the one gram, which is accepted, and they're petitioning to try and make it come up. But they have a curiosity. What's the lethal dose? So if you go above the four gram and you get to six gram or 10 gram, they don't want anybody to do this, but they want to understand when does harm come to the bees. And what's really important is not only did it kill the mites and not impact the bees, in the subsequent studies that they released, which I think he said are coming out, published free to everyone in September. So he was going through how much money it costs to publish the studies. The system is backwards. They have to pay people to publish the studies in order to get them out there. And then it's behind a paywall. And so the previous studies that they've done on this stuff, if you go get it, you have to pay to see it. He paid extra money for this most recent study that's coming out in September that we're summarizing. And you should really go see Cameron Jack and see what he has to say and get it from him. Just know from us, this is kind of what's going on. Um, they are looking at how it harmed the bees. And in the most recent study, what they found is, did it affect brood production? Did it affect honey production? Did it affect X, Y, and Z? The answer is no. I think there were four major markers they were looking at. And they had a control colony, and they had the oxalic colonies in comparison, and they saw no measurable compromise with four grams of oxalic. And the last footnote on this, I know this is a huge interest to a lot of people, is they did a study about every five days, every seven days, and so on. And I don't, I don't know if there's anything in the notes. I don't, I don't want to say this right because I'll be honest, I don't remember what it was. I think it was five days, subsequent treatments of five days. He made the joke that. Somebody tapped him on the shoulder somewhere along the way and said, I know the proper answer to this. I'm going to solve all your problems, Cameron. This is the answer to this. This was his joke out in front of the podium. And everybody said, well, what is it? And he goes, you need the oxalic acid vaporization your hive every day. <laughs> every day, that's the answer. When you do that, the mites just go away and you have no cares in the world. And so he said, I, I want to think my takeaway, not what he said, my takeaway was they did find that like five to seven days was the window. Maybe it's not terribly critical, but it's somewhere I think they need to do more work on that is what I recall. Well, so, I, you, know, I, you know, I gave a presentation last year on uh, oxalic acid and uh, what Jennifer Berry said is she tried repeated, well, let's go so oxalic acid needs to be used when the, when the hive is broodless. So we're saying, well, how effective is it if you're going to do it, say, every five days when there's brood in the hive? And her research showed that it really did not reduce the amount of mites in the hive. What it did was it maintained, they, the mites didn't grow 
but it didn't knock them down either. So, uh, again, it kind of conflicts with, with what Cameron Jack is seeing, and I guess that's why, why we do research. Well, I think what Cameron was saying, if, if I, again, another observation and takeaway, um, he was discussing how the mites come out, and his supposition of the everyday makes no sense because when you kill the mites that are on the bees, you have to wait for the next round to come out with the bees that emerge. If you kill them today, how many cells emerge in the next day? You'd want critical mass of enough mites coming out of the cells, and then when you get to that right ratio, then you would zap them again while they're riding around on the bees, right? And if you're doing it too frequently, you're kind of wasting your effort. You want to find that Goldilocks period, and they don't quite know where that is. Yeah, that's that's kind of the footnote on that. So on uh, oxalic acid, more to come, right? But there is one thing I'll come back to Sammy Ramsey's talk. In the, foot, in the keynote, he said, why do the mites go on the bees? And one of the key things, Charlie Ilsley, uh, when, when Ramsey's first work came out, he talked about mitelogenin. And our friend Charlie, who is a savant, was talking about, at that time, vitelogenin. And it's a foreign word, if you don't know what it is. It's a type of protein. When the varroa mites are consuming the fat body on the bees, they are pulling something out called vitelogenin. And vitelogenin is an egg yolk precursor. The mites don't make this very well. And part of the massive egg that they lay, which Sammy showed in the talk was astonishing. How do they get all the material? And how do they get all that material to create as many eggs as they create in a short time frame while they're down inside the cell feeding off of the pupa? Well, the answer is they require to ride around on the nurse bees because the nurse bees are harboring this vitelogenin. And to tie that back to what Cameron's saying, you want to wait till they get on the nurse bees and when the mites the foundress mites, come out of the cell and get onto the nurse bees, unlike other species of mites and bee relationships, for our bees, they ride around for, what do you say, five days? Five to seven days on the nurse bees because they need to take in the vitelogenin in order to go back into the cell and do the next round. So if that ties back to the time frame, what Cameron is saying for how often you do treatments, we're actually leveraging that side effect of they have to ride on the worker bee in order to take that out. That gives us the opportunity to gas them. Yeah. That makes a lot, of sense. That makes a lot more sense. Right? And, and, you know, the, the uh, funny thing about all of this, Charlie was telling us this 10 years ago. 10 years ago. 10 years ago, he was talking about... Grow uh, degree days and vitelogenin. Vitelogenin is like the, uh, you know, the, the uh, elixir of life. It, it's what allows the bees to live long and live through the winter. So it's like a fountain of youth. Is yeah. What it is. And uh, you're 
right. He, it just demonstrates that we know that Charlie's savant, brilliant, yes. omniscient. And, and here in this, how many years later was this? It, here it surfaces again. And I looked to you and I said, gosh darn it, Charlie was right. What's really funny about it is, if it, if we, we, we probably Charlie. recorded this somewhere along the line, Charlie we, talking we, about we my intelligence. <laughs> and we love Charles. And, you know, he'll tell us this stuff, and we don't understand it. And we think it's because of Charles that we don't understand it. But it's not. He yeah. understands it. He's brilliant. Yeah. We just can't get it. <laughs> so, yeah. That well, was, and, and he bludgeons, uh, bludgeoned us with it enough that we still remember it to this day. Absolutely. So It's funny how when the, the word patelogenic came up, yeah. we looked at each other. We laughed. We just laughed. So. Okay. So I'm back, and I want to spend a few minutes just talking about that recording that we made back in August. And now it's December, and reflecting on the conversation, I have to say that this is one of those moments that I encourage you, when you go to training, when you go to listen to seminars, when you see stuff online being presented, eventually, if you immerse yourself enough, you start to make and connect the dots, make conclusions. And there was a moment in there tying back to what Sammy Ramsey was talking about in his keynote at EAS. That was really interesting. When you think about the conversation that people always have about Varroa mites being on the adult bees, most of us probably, at least I did, picture that as transport. They hop onto a bee to move around inside the colony and do whatever they're doing. We know that they go on the underside of the bee and they feed on the adults. But to make the connection about how dependent they are on going in and pulling out the egg yolk precursor from vitelligenin from sucking on the fat body and the ability to exploit that because when you're doing oxalic acid vaporizations, if you can get to the mite, hopefully it's somewhat exposed, then you could potentially have the impact to clear the mite off of the adult bees. kind of find that interesting. I was looking today for information about Cameron Jack's release of the most recent research, and I didn't get a chance to spend a lot of time, but I didn't find it. I'm not sure if there was a delay or I just didn't look in the right place. But if you look online, you'll find that Cameron, Cameron has been presenting at different places, I think I saw some presentation he did in Connecticut where he spoke on things. And I don't know if anybody's recorded what he's talking about recently. But uh, yeah, more to go. And it seems to me in talking to beekeeping circles that I know there's a new Apovar that just got released or is coming. And I also know that Apovar has been deemed ineffective by some people. And there's the whole conversation starting to emerge about Apovar leaving products in honey. And there's such a conflict. Now they're saying that you can use it differently from the existing label that's been there. And I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, but it seems to me that there is quite a bit of momentum for moving to oxalic acid or at least it's become very darling. And this research that Cameron's been doing and our understanding of the information as it emerges and the, the grams and all of that stuff, very important conversation 
that we'll probably hear quite a bit of in 2024. I guess the last part of that is, I just talked to Charlie Ilsley on the phone the other day, and all the conversations with him are just a hoot. And I, I love the guy to pieces and have the utmost respect for his intelligence, and he just astounds me every time I talk to him about the different things that he's working on. And Yeah, how funny is it that Bob and I both <laughs> at that moment of that. And Charlie's been on the show here, so if you ever wanted to get a listen to him, uh, go back and look in the past catalog, and I've talked about him. And yeah, he's just one of those really unique characters that will forever cement himself for the people that know him. And uh, God bless him. He's the treasurer of the New Jersey Beekeepers Association. And boy, I tell you, the amount of work that he's done for beekeeping in the state of New Jersey is just off the scale. And uh, always fun to catch up with Charlie wherever we can. So. I remember looking just recently at the first meeting I ever went to for the Northwest Beekeepers Association, and it was Charlie that I spent most of the meeting talking to. And uh, I'll never forget, he's been there right from the beginning. Moving on to topic number two, this is a one-on-one -on -one recorded again with EAS. I'm glad to finally go back. I found some of these recordings, they were corrupt and had a problem with them, but I was able to reconstitute a couple of them, and I'm glad I didn't uh, lose this one. She started beekeeping in 1989 and became a master beekeeper, EAS master beekeeper in 2022. And I remember in 2022 being introduced to Kathy Misko from Missouri, and being struck by the quick conversation that we had in the hallway as we were passing and remembered that in 2023, if possible, I was going to seek her out and see if we could just have a talk because I remember something very interesting about her beekeeping practice that you're going to hear about and I'm not going to spoil it. So on that day, we took some time in the afternoon to catch up with her being a chemical-free beekeeper. The conversation starts out with some baseline of Kathy's operations so you can understand conditions and methods for how she keeps her bee in her region. We spent a few moments covering some of her management practice with a bit of discussion on the interesting practice that I think you're going to find surprising. I'll come back at the end after you listen to this and offer again a couple closing comments. I'm here today with Kathy Misko. Hi Kathy. Hello there Kevin. We are in a classroom off to the side at EAS 2023. We were just about to go to launch, and I was introduced to you last year by a friend, and we had a promise to try and catch up and just talk about what you have going on, and this year we're able to connect, so I'm really happy to catch up with you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. I am tickled to be here. So what we're going to talk about is, uh, in the conversation, Bob Kloss and I are working on treatment-free project right now, so to speak, and one of the folks who heard that had sent me and said, you need to come talk to Kathy and listen a little bit about what she's doing. She's been doing this for quite some time and pretty successful, so that's kind of where we're going to go, but we can talk about anything. It's just two beekeepers having a chit-chat. So the first question I have, and let's just get some basics on you. So where is your bee operation located? I live in Centerview, Missouri, about, oh, about an hour east of Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
What's the, the, the winters like for you there? I'm from the show me state, uh-huh. so it can be anything. We can have blizzards or we can have no snow. But we get we get quite a bit of cold weather. You ever get the below freezing below Ab- zero stuff too? Absolutely. Yeah. We can okay. be seven below for over a week. You're an EAS master beekeeper? I am. When did you do that? I came to EAS last year and made it all the way through my testing and I am now certified. Awesome. So how long have you been keeping bees? I started beekeeping in nine. 19- 1989. Wow. So about 35 years. Wow. I did not know that. Yes. I, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. How many hives do you run? I now have 38, but 20 is my goal. So, so I'm a, <laughs> good luck at your beekeeper. <laughs> I am a busy Are lady right now. I have Langstroth hives. Yeah. I run screen bottom boards and Mostly What's a typical difference. setup? You're not doing single deep or Tim Hives no. Tower Hive. You're doing two deeps and then mediums over top? Well, I will say I wish I could go to all mediums. I'm, I have 10 frames. I like the versatility. Yeah. But I wish I had all mediums. I started out with deeps. And now I've been trying to go to mediums, but I just can't do it. I need to pull out those deeps. Because uh, I need the boxes, so yeah. I can't get away from it. One of, one of our beekeepers at our club, Gene Miller, has a how to transition to mediums presentation. It's not an uncommon thing these days for a mm-hmm. lot of people to be doing that. So, so talk a little bit about your beekeeping operation, your property, or wherever. You have everything on your, on your homeland, or do you have a bunch of different... We live, we're agriculture, we live in an agricultural area, mm-hmm. mostly monocrop and surrounded by trees and some forage, some wild forage for the bees too. I do try to maintain about five acres of gardens. I love to garden. But you know the bees can fly five miles away. Of course, yeah. So do you find your bees work in your property? I guess you have to see some of it, right? I see some, you know, when the young bees are just flying around looking for something good. Yeah, right. They'll fly at a short distance. I don't see the bees as much on my flowers and natives as much as I see them flying in the air and going north, south, east, and west. Hey, you you probably, like me, have tended dozens and dozens. You probably, being how long you've even more meetings that I have. And there's all these people who plant pollinator gardens, and I always say to them, it's really nice that you feed everybody else's bees because most of the time <laughs> the bees fly off your property, but it does make your property look nice. So so one of the reasons we're having a chit-chat is you're a treatment-free beekeeper. Have you always been? No. I. It was really back in 2000. I used to get all swarms. I was the bee lady back in my yes. time and everybody <laughs> contacted me but now I'm the old bee lady and in 2007 I decided $75 for a package of bees was unsustainable so I started working on it in 2007 2010 I made a complete decision no turning back that I was going to be chemical free. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, Michael Palmer came to Missouri and 
uh, talked on sustainable beekeeping then, and that was the ticket I needed, just that confirmation. Can, can you imagine the profound impact he has had far He's, and wide? He uh, is, he just a, is a incredible influence on so many people. To hear you say that mm-hmm. is not a surprise. Yeah, he is a legend. Yeah. He is. So in, in your beekeeping, are you holding like full-size colonies and keeping nukes on the side? Because that was something that Mike loved to do. Rearing your own queens, do you do any of that stuff? I propagate from my queens, my survivor queens, that mm-hmm. maintain low mite counts that are nice bees. My husband is not a beekeeper. They must be nice. Yeah. And that also are disease-free. I do not propagate on uh, how much honey uh, they make. I am not commercial in that sense. I'm looking at good genetics that I can share in my community. So take me through a year in the life for you, because I don't know your region that much. When does spring start for you? When do you start to see the spring forage? How long does it last? Okay. We can start, you know, normally, normally apples usually bloom around Easter, which is usually around April. But in Missouri, sometimes the winters can start, or the spring can start fairly early. And there was a year that when I popped those uh, lids off in January, there was brood like in May. I was supering in March, the first of March, with capped uh, honey supers at the end of March, and that was my March Madness honey. But we had an incredible dirt in June, and the bees took it all under. But I didn't have to feed that winter. That was a conversation I just had with my wife before coming here. I pulled all our honey because we're in a dearth right now. I wondered whether bees would take it all back by the time we got home. So I I understand that. So your your spring starts sometime in April, which is not too Mm -hmm. dissimilar. Do you have have a dearth in when? July, August? Uh, July, August usually, but then we'll have the uh, fall flowers coming. And usually we try to get get the honey off and help those bees get ready for winter. The end of July. Oh, goldenrod. Yes, we have goldenrod. Stinky sock smelling (laughs) goldenrod up there. Then you think you have American foul brood. Isn't it? hmm? I love that honey, to be honest with you. It's full of antioxidants. It's a really wholesome and uh, full-bodied honey. So I remember standing in a hallway last year in New York at Ithaca and having a conversation with you, and you dropped the most interesting fact, if I remember this right. You do sugar dusting. Am I right? I do sugar dusting. I have been doing sugar dusting all since 2008. I started, I do sugar rolls for my testing 2007. Um, Jennifer Berry did a study on sugar testing. I love Jennifer Berry. She is a friend of mine. And uh, she did a study in Georgia. It's very, very humid in Georgia on sugar testing. And she's like, oh, I really hope it works. And 
she came back to me and she says, ah, sugar dusting doesn't work. And I was in the field with her, and I watched her do a, a presentation in the field on how they sugar dust, and it was with a flower sifter, and she was sugar dust the hive in the middle of the afternoon, and as she sugar dust the feet, the bees flew out, and I looked at that. That's not how I sugar dust. And I thought, I put more sh- powdered sugar on my German pancake than what she put <laughs> on the hive. And we, we really haven't talked about it yeah. since. But yes, I powdered sugar dust my colonies if they have a high mite count that I see after I pull honey I have to secretly tell you, I loved sugar dust. And I do. I, I personally thought it was a great idea. And it was only when Jennifer came and said to us, she was in New Jersey, that I'm sorry it doesn't work, that I kind of got away from the practice. But when I heard that from you, my eyes lit up because I had always learned, and I don't know where this factoid came, that the sugar molecule was just the right size to interfere with the cup, the footprint, and they couldn't grab on. And it made so much sense, and especially the bees maintain the chamber at 90 plus degrees, and it melts the sugar and it makes them slippery. And so I always thought the mechanics of sugar dusting was there, and I was kind of surprised. Now, I had also heard, and maybe you can talk about this, that it interferes with the breathing of the bees because there's a certain... um, The spiracles get clogged or have a problem with it. So I'm assuming you never got that deep into it? I don't know about that. Um, I I do know that as the bees heat up, like Mm -hmm. in a powdered sugar roll for mite testing in that jar, as long as you don't put them in the sun and cook them, the bees heat up, and that encourages the mites to release. We roll it around. They get dislodged, mm-hmm. and then we shake out the powdered sugar with the mites, and the bees stay in. So I took, I knowing that when I let do, me ask, what device do you use for your dusting? When do you, dusting do you, or sugar roll? Sugar roll, sorry. When, a sugar roll. I use a quart jar, wide mouth. And I like to use a sprout lid. A screen. A screen. I use it. I know. My gift. wife has those. So 1980. I know they start. You can still buy them for like yeah, you could grow your own sprouts in a jar, right? That's, That's right. I said to her one day, don't be surprised if I steal that thing from That's me. right. Yeah. <laughs> the orange or green color. They come in different sizes. And um, that's what I use for my sugar roll that I love doing. I I compare to hive to hive. I've been doing it many years. And also, I have taken a jar of previous uh, tested bees mm-hmm. to our bee club and have given that jar of bees buzzing around that have been gone through a sugar roll to somebody to do an alcohol wash. And I do this multiple, I've done this many times for the alcohol washes for somebody that wants to do an alcohol, but I won't tell them what what count I got on that sugar roll. And it's been fun to see that they can't get any mites, except for one fella. He he shook, she he shook and shook that alcohol and then poured it out and he said I said, What'd you find? He goes, Oh, one mite. Yeah. I said, Let me see. 
He shook so hard he did not he did not wash out a mite. It was a bee stinger. So yeah, I say if, right? I say if you're planning on doing an alcohol wash and you're going to kill the bees, go ahead do a sugar roll first, then do your alcohol wash, then count your bees, and just you're going to be more educated in what you're doing. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a very interesting idea. Now, you, you must have seen Jennifer deal with the humidity problem and all that other stuff, too, mm -hmm. and that sugar gets clumped up in there. Do you ever run across that? Or? that? That is an important thing about clumpy sugar, old sugar, used sugar, a bag of uh, powdered sugar that's been open to the environment. I usually go buy a brand new bag of sugar straight from the supermarket. I don't grind it myself. There's maybe 3% of corn starch in it right. and for anti-caking, mm -hmm. but it's not an issue. It's, it really is not an issue. Because there was commentary about that. Yeah. The mm -hmm. caking agents also mm -hmm. be detrimental mm -hmm. somehow to the bees. And I think, now that you brought that up, it was the caking agent that caused the breathing problem for the bees. The but, our, but like you, back in the day when I used to do this, we had snow bees. They would fly around and be in the hive, and they'd be perfectly fine. They they reacclimated, as you probably yes. know, quite fine. In in the fall, I like to call them ghost bees, and yeah. as they fly <laughs> through the air. But you must have um, so powdered, take us fluffy through that process. What do you? You talked about Jennifer not maybe using enough products. So take us through how I sugar how dust? you actually open the hive. Where do you dust? and okay. so on. Take us through the whole process so okay. somebody can... When I sugar dust the hive, I may be sugar dusting a double deep, all in one swoop. It takes about 30 seconds. I like to first, I like to know what my mite counts are. It's for records. I like to know what my queens are doing and how they're keeping mite counts down naturally. So I like to do mite counts. And But when it's time for me to do a sugar dusting on a colony that I think has a higher mite load than I'm comfortable with, I do it at the end of the day because the end of the day, most bees are in-house and it's warmer inside. They're not going to be flying out of there uh, uh, right away. So end of the day, I like it warm as in fall weather, I mean hot, warm fall weather, not in the winter. I really like it around 80 degrees and we can have that in the fall. I like a warm day because that ambient temperature is going to help with the mite drop inside the hive also because of the heated bees. I like to take a, a I need a screen bottom board I like to oil that screen bottom board tray or cardboard underneath the screen. I, I actually keep, keep that screen open all year, but for powdered sugar dusting, I will take Pam, spray that insert or cardboard, put it under. I have my smoker going, I have a window screen, and I just pop off the inner cover smoke the bees down one hand I hold my smoker to keep the bees in house the other hand I pop the screen on top of that double D I put on one cup 
uh, fluffy powdered sugar, take my bee brush, brush it all around, pop the screen off, put the lid back on. I'm done. Ah, interesting. Because originally in the, in the instructions, you would take the top box off, dust the bottom, put the top back on, dust the top, and how much sugar you used was anywhere from half cup to some people put two, three cups on. It was kind of no, it was catch as catch can. So, okay, you're just mm -hmm. doing one shot right from the top. That's and I'm right. assuming you're trying to spread that sugar across all the frames. Yes, with the bead brush. Now, if you have uh, a beetle blaster in there with oil, mm -hmm. you would want to take some painter's tape and cover it up or it'll fill up with sugar. Yeah. Uh, if you have Swiffers up in there, you may want to pop them off and then put them back when you're done. And But yes, I do brush it also across the frames into the hive, but you really need your smoker going because the bees want to fly out. I want them to stay in that hive, get really, really hot, and fan and groom each other with this powdered sugar. Well, what is, um, I've never been where you are, so I don't know what the landscape is. Is it rolling hills? Is it rocky soil? We have. What's, it, what's your, is it flat farmland? I, where I live, it's rolling hills, yes, farmland. Um, we have some fertile soil and rich soil in some places. It, it may be clay in other places. Mm -hmm. We have quite a mixture where I live. And so where you're at, the, I'm coming to small hive beetles. They burrow into the ground and reproduce. Yes. So do you have a big small hive beetle world? We do in Missouri, but I never saw a small... I was bragging I didn't have them in 2007. And then I saw my first small hive beetle. I have learned quite a bit with the, with the small high beetle. Um, with the small high beetle, they love fermenting fruit. They yes. love your fermenting bee bread. Yeah. They usually come in the hives in the evening. Uh, a stressed hive, a queenless hive, there's a stress pheromone that can be emitted and, and they come in. And I have... And if, since they love fermenting fruit, if you have an orchard nearby, you m it would be wise to rake up that rotting, fermenting right, right. fruit that you don't have time. Into the property, and then when they're done with that, that's they'll right. come smell your hives. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So you do, but you don't have like inundation. Of, you have a like us in New Jersey. We see small high beetles, but and we smush them with our high tool, but we don't generally go crazy. We don't lose hives. We don't have hundreds of them. Although we have seen some spotty problems, but you don't have that going on. Because you say you use traps. That's what makes me Yes, ask. yes. Now I, I do like to use Swiffers. I can have, uh, a, I can see maybe up to a hundred small hive beetles on an inner cover and the bees have patrolled them, chased them up there and put them in their beetle jail. Yes, I have seen that. What I like to do if I see uh, that I have a number of small hive beetles on a colony. I like to put on my white plastic uh, lids. The sun shines through them a little bit. You know, there's, they're photosensitive, and there's you can use the sun to uh, chase them down. Oh, I have never heard that. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I have one white plastic lid, 
And when I used it in the past, I always saw water accumulated underneath and on the top of the inner cover, thankfully, but who knows what goes on. But I never thought of light passing through. That's interesting. Yeah, I will pass. I will pass. I have a couple of them. There was a, it's called the Beetle Banisher. Um, mm-hmm. Somebody was trying to mark it, and it was a red plastic lid to allow the sun to go through, uh, discourage beetles from wanting to stay in your hive. And I don't know what happened to that, but I have a couple prototypes of it. And it we works. actually run two-inch foam insulation blocks over top of our inner cover all year long. So it wouldn't that's, shine that's through. That's what we're doing, so it wouldn't go through. But yeah. I suppose you could take them off. Yeah. For... So is there any other management practices that... that for small high beetle? About? No, just in general that you do. Like you're, you're doing sugar dusting. Is there anything else? Well, I... You had mentioned me being treatment-free. Well, I'm, I do a lot of treatment as in integrated pest management, okay. IPM, but I'm chemical-free. I don't look at powdered sugar Yeah, dusting. forgive me. I, I just was yeah. going in that direction. You, you use the right terms to describe what you have, and I don't want to label you oh. in, in that way, but I, I know what you mean by integrated pest management. Yeah. So what other things are you doing? So genetics is number one for me. And it takes a lot of years to try to get uh, sustainable, resistant, varroa-resistant, disease-resistant genetics. It takes years Do to you maintain that. scorecards for all your colonies? Records, but not scorecards. Yeah. I, if you looked at my records... If you walked back in February and looked at a hive and said, okay, this is what I have a plan for you, how do you keep track of that one's good, but the one next to it is not the one... I make maps. You'd think I was still in kindergarten. <laughs> I I make maps. I use cardstock, different colored cardstock. Yeah. Each time I go out to the colony, I use a different color pen. And with that pen, I put the date and then any, and I have little pictures. You're on your cardstock. Card, on my cardstock. Okay. And I have a picture of my apiary, all 38 colonies out there. And... I will use arrows, I have my own shorthand, and I, but I use that color, and then I go back. The next time I inspect, I use a different color, I look at the records, the notes I took. And when that is filled up, or it just looks like a train station and arrows and swirls yeah. everywhere, then I get a new cardstock, and I keep them all on a clipboard. Do you have anybody that helps you, or are you doing this all yourself? I do not have anybody that uh-huh. helps me. I do have people that help me eat the honey. Yeah. And I do not, I think I could probably do better if I had an assistant, if I didn't talk to him too what, much. What kind of forage do you have available in your space? Around, Where do you think your bees are working? Right now, this time of the year, the bees are working soybeans. They can pull in quite a bit of soybean, nectar, honey, especially if it's purple, the purple variety. And that's a monocrop close to me. And then they'll, they, ah, that invasive, sweet, and yellow clover. I mean, they, they bring a lot of that in. We have honey locusts, or sorry, we have black locusts. Black locusts. Yeah, black locusts they, in the they spring. They provide, like, massive spurts and big, right? 
Yes, it's big a good quantities. But it, it's only about ten days. It's a, it's it's a short window. Yeah, you the clover's a big. Good. Hopefully, it's not raining, right? Yes, yes. Clover's a big one. Okay. Anything special um, that is unusual in your area? Like people claim this is the kind of honey that comes from that region, or? Well, we've got a lot of blackberries. I'm trying to think. We have a number of invasive things that bring in some good knotweed and whatever the, that people like mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. linden trees and yes, yes. So, is there anything that I've not asked you about, or what would you tell people who might look at what your operation is and say, "This is some guidance that I wish I could have told my, you know, former self," or is it just? Nose to the grindstone, keep following a good practice, and what's your thought on that? Well, one, I, I think you should stay, try to stay educated, continue with your, or have continuing education, be educated, because we have such a responsibility to be servants of our bees. I believe that is in yeah. servanthood. Uh, and with that, you should continue with education, reach out, read the research, uh, follow up with that. Um, If I could go back, I think we, I don't know that I would do anything different because everything I've done up to this point has been what I've learned and why I do what I do. I learned I had bees that weren't sustainable. I need to do something about it. So, but I've had to work at it, and I think people need to also can stay stay focused, stay educated, work on what you need to work on where you want to go. Um, genetics is very important. I also believe you don't do you don't rear your own queens, if I'm right. I do. Or do you do? Queen well, I do not. You're not I don't grafting gra- and I don't like graft, but I notch. Okay. Ah, okay, I know what you mean. Yes. If I really like to, when I split my colonies, I like to do a reverse split. First of all, it's got to be uh, genetics that I want to propagate. Mm-hmm. And I like to do a reverse split. I like to pull out Mother Queen and put her in a nuke. If they have a a lot of resources, I may go ahead and do an even split. But I like to do that when the bees are in the mood to reproduce. It's part of my swarm management. Fair enough, yeah. Keep all my kids So there's people who are going to say, what is this notch thing? So can you just do it Oh, I love notching. I love notching. Uh, If if the bees aren't in the mood for uh, starting swarm cells at the for the time for me to split, and I must split them because one, I want a brood break because varroa mites don't. They do that naturally. They break, they re- they split, they swarm, and they're going to decrease their uh, mite load when they do that. So I am doing an artificial swarm by splitting them. So I pull mother queen out. I and if I I don't have swarm cells to leave in the parent colony. I will look in there. I will look for, I say, an 18-hour larva. It's, it's a larva that it 
barely has a smirk. It's not a smile. It's barely <laughs> a smirk on the side of somebody's I love that face. And I liked. I I don't use my high tool anymore. I used to use a high tool, and I remove uh, the cells and the bottom floor of the cells underneath the larva that I think is appropriate. I do about an inch. Just use my high tool. I don't do that anymore. I have a fork a kitchen fork with four prongs on it and I set those four prongs are perfectly lined up to four hexagon cells and I put those in gently to not harm the larva or displace royal jelly and I pull down about an inch pull those bottom set the bottom wall of those cells down about and an knock inch the floor out. knock the floor out give room for the bees now to make a queen cell in that spot. And Did I, they ever build four in a row? Because a lot oh, of times when you had that instruction, you would build, you would knock out one, and then you would go over three more and knock. And that way, if they built Mystery Peanut, they wouldn't be on top of each other. But you could have like four fingers <laughs> out of that. Type oh, of sometimes thing. they do. Yeah. And I, I, usually, I usually place any swarm cells in about the number three number four slots so that when I go back into the hive to look to see how they're doing I can I know exactly Frame where I'm not yeah right, just so three or four out of ten frames I like to use the left side but sometimes I use the right side it depends and I put it on my 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 picture your little notes what I did <laughs> yes and I also when I go back in I want to make sure that they didn't make any other emergency cells, and I take them off. I want them to use mine because I chose. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I suppose we could probably just keep talking, but at some point we're supposed to go get some lunch, and I just wanted to say thanks for you to take time out of the busy schedule and come talk to me. And I'm, I am going to guess that I'm going to get a lot of feedback, questions about things I could have asked you, and I would love to give you a call someday, and maybe if people have questions, Kevin at BK Corner, send me a note. What do you want to hear from Kathy? And we can bring you back and talk about those things. And um, I'm not sure. I, I don't want to say no. Is there anything else that I, I should have asked you? I think you've done pretty Somewhere good. Somewhere along the line, we could probably talk about the beekeeping scene and how you fit in with your local clubs and whatever is going on because I'd be curious to I always love to hear and learn and go see what beekeeping is like in other places and you know I would imagine if you came and watched what we would do in New Jersey last couple weeks ago we had a state meeting in Tuckabee was our one of our featured speakers and I love the fact that after the meeting was over we went and did a live field thing uh -huh. and when we were in the field it was raining and we were all soaking wet, and we had the bees open and an umbrella over the hive, and she had a complete blast. And I just oh. thought she got to see how Jersey peeps do it. And I thought that was <laughs> neat. I don't know. I felt kind of proud of that moment. Absolutely. You know, Making so, memories. So I'd love to hear what, what that's about from you. Maybe next time we can follow up and chat with that. And it won't be till next year at EAS. Although we're going to rock Maryland, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I should be there. <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank and, you. And uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. It's been a blast. 
Thank you. It's been an honor for me. Thank yeah, you. Thanks. So wasn't that interesting? I I remember bumping into Kathy on the final day as we were walking out and asking her a couple more questions of things that I thought of. One of the things I had said to her is, did she monitor her mites and how did that work out? She said she was getting a 33% knockdown on mites with dusting, if I remember correctly. And while that may not seem much as part of the integrated pest management, and remember, no chemicals, that's pretty decent. And if you did that with enough specificity and, and you know repeated it over time, what is a bag of powdered sugar cost? You could probably do really well. And what she told me in the end is, I think her 2022 or 23 ended up with 38 colonies with a 10% loss average. And if that's the end game, I think that's more than acceptable. There's probably 25 million things that we could have talked about and left out of that conversation. But somewhere down the road, maybe we'll cross paths again and get... uh, to talk to her further about how things are going. I just love the fact I mentioned it, you know, in passing, I love powdered sugar dusting and I always thought it was a really smart way to go. And it was the Jennifer Berry study that we touched upon and some additional information where people kept just panning it and saying it was completely and utterly ineffective and that it was causing harm, and bees had a difficulty in breathing, and you're putting that stuff in your hives. But honestly, I remember doing it as a young beekeeper and thinking, I thought it was a pretty decent practice. And after hearing what she did, you know, I'm going to revisit this. I feel like it might not be that terrible of an idea. And what would be the harm of checking in a chemical-free process doing a couple hives and seeing how it goes. I'm not saying Jennifer Berry was wrong. I love Jennifer Berry. I think she does amazing work. But there's so many different factors in play that I don't want to say but because that, that's terrible. <laughs> I still think I want to give it a try. So who knows? Maybe the 2024 beekeeping season will be bringing out sugar dusting again. I think that's uh, an interesting idea to mull over. Anyway, I wanted to say thanks to Kathy. I know it's been a long time since we recorded that. And now it's finally hitting the airwaves. And I do appreciate the time. You know, when you pay money and go to a conference like that, it's one thing to be pulled aside and miss lunch and all of that. And I always appreciate the time that people make for us. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It feels like this is a good place to leave the conversation in We'll pick it up some other time. For closing comments, though, I wanted to say congratulations to Bob Kloss and a little nod to myself for the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association. We received the Lifetime Achievement Award. And I have to say, for all the work that we've done for the association, I was most proud to see Bob get it because of all the work that he's done over the years for the association outreach, training mentors, the training that he does for the club and presentations as he talked about, the supreme amount of work that he's done maintaining the monitoring hives, mentoring hives, and and even more. You just can't imagine the work at the fairs and 
the legislative work. I mean, I could just keep going on and on. And uh, I, I was really happy to see our association recognize the body of work that Bob had done. And kudos to him. And uh, I say thanks for, for getting one too. And I will say this as I've said in the past. Beekeepers associations are great. There's there's never a time when you go to a bee meeting that you don't learn something in casual conversation with other beekeepers, you make friends, and I just don't know why one would not want to be a part of an active community in that manner. So with that, uh, if you're not and never have been a member of a beekeepers association, even if you join as a casual member and just appear every once in a while and go take in a meeting, they're pretty interesting people at a bee meeting a lot of times, but you'll make a lot of friends over the years and uh, certainly a worthwhile endeavor to give your time to. There's so many times I'm hearing from beekeeping clubs that people don't come to meetings anymore. I think you're missing out, folks. If you haven't been to your local beekeeping meeting in a long time, it's time to put it on the calendar. The next announcement that you see, make it a point to reserve the date and go see your fellow beekeepers. Okay, I think that's a good place to leave it. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody, and be well.